Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Featuring Joe Sweeney from Thinking Sideways Podcast and filmmaker Vincent Caldani. This is The Shocking Details. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of The Shocking Details. I'm Joe, joined as always by Vincent Caldoni. And we're back with another fascinating story. This one is, uh, we've been doing some more contemporary stuff lately, so I decided to reach back into the Wayback Machine and dredge up something from way back when. This is L'Affaire Humbert, which was a, a massive scandal in France around the turn of the 20th century. Which, a pretty uh, rocked, strange one, too. It is, and it rocked the French financial markets and uh, bankrupted thousands of people. It was a huge scandal. And so we're going to talk about it. It's because it's a weird, it's kind of a twisted little story. Would you not agree? Yeah, I would totally agree with you on that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a, pretty weird. It's a, Yeah, it is. Okay, so let's get rolling here. Let's do it. Let's set up. Yes. Once upon a time in the south of France, there was a town called Toulouse. You may have heard of it. And there was a mayor of Toulouse. His name was Gustave Humbert. That's, that's Humbert pronounced hum, or not pronounced, but, but spelled Humbert in mm-hmm. English, but pronounced Humbert in French. The mayor was uh, the mayor was married, had children, lived in a nice house, of course. He was the mayor. Eventually, he had a political future. He would eventually go on to become the Minister of Justice for France. So, uh, yeah, the guy was a rising star. But our story is not about Monsieur Humbert. The Humberts had a servant girl, a washerwoman named Therese Arignac. I think I said that right. I don't know. But Therese, close. yeah, close enough. She, uh, she came from poverty. She had been orphaned at the age of 17 when her father died. Her mom had died some years previously. Therese had three younger siblings, Emile, Roman, and Marie, and she had to take a job to support them along with herself, which is how she came to be a servant in the house of Monsieur Humbert. Hmm. But despite her humble origins and her extremely humble job, Therese was a kind of Cinderella. The mayor's son, Frédéric, he took a shine to Therese, and the two became very close. She told him and his family an amazing story, an old lady. Madame de Marcot had been fond of her, but had died without heirs. So Madame de Marcot left an entire pile of cash to Therese. More than that, left a castle and an estate, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was not just a pile of cash. It was a vast estate. It had land. It had a chateau, which, of course, was called Chateau de Marcot. And, of course, there was ample sums of money to be found in such a chateau. (laughs) (laughs) Even though Therese was but a mere washerwoman, in reality, she kind of was a type of a princess. She was. But there was a small hitch. See, she could 
couldn't actually get her inher- she couldn't actually come into this inheritance until she reached the age of 21. Therese repeated this story often and with great conviction, so everyone pretty much accepted it as the truth. Mm-hmm. And the story was certainly good enough for Frederick Humbert. He proposed to Therese and they eloped to Paris because apparently his dad, Gustave, did not totally approve of the of the marriage. <laughs> uh, the big inheritance, I don't know. I, I'm still not sure exactly about Gustave, to be honest, but we'll get more into that later. Um, but our big inheritance was several years off, of course, but you know they were young. They could wait. Uh, Frederick studied for the bar and passed it, became a lawyer. They lived uh, reasonably well because Therese had actually spread the word around the local merchants that she was going to come into a huge pot of money. Because of that, it wasn't that hard for them to get credit. So they, <laughs> I wish it still worked that way. I don't know. I know. Hey, I'm going to get rich. I'm going to be rich. Okay. <laughs> Take a car. Yeah. Just give me the car. The shocking details thing is going to blow up, I swear. It doesn't work quite that way anymore. No. Ah, damn it. But as time went by, of course, people started to wonder why and when they were going to get paid back. Mm. They started asking each other, ever heard of this Chateau de Marcot? And no one actually had. But this chateau was in the Ton department, which is way in the south of France, not far from Spain and near the Mediterranean Sea, a long way from Paris. So everyone allowed as it probably did exist. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, probably. Yeah. But then one of the local merchants, he goes on a trip to the south of France, and that took him very near to the site of the famous chateau. He made some inquiries while he was there and found oh. out that that fabulous chateau did not exist. Oh, no. <laughs> you can imagine oh. how this went over back in Paris. Frederick and Therese owed a lot of people a lot of money. And now it was apparent to everyone that their good credit was based on pure BS. People started demanding repayment or threatening to go to the police. So Frederick Humbert had been taken in by Therese's story as much as anyone else. He went to her and asked her, influent French, of course, WTF woman. <laughs> she was forced to admit that her entire story was a lie. Frederick was flummoxed, of course, but more practically speaking, he uh, couldn't think of a way to pay back all their debts because he wasn't really making all that much money. So he was forced to go with his hat in his hand to his dad, Gustave. And his dad, of course, was no longer mayor of Toulouse. He was now minister of justice for France. He went to him and told him the whole sad, embarrassing story. The dad, of course, wanted to avoid a scandal because, I mean, the daughter-in-law, the minister of justice, is a freaking con artist. Can you imagine how that would go over? So, mm-hmm. so Gustave Humbert paid off all the debts. Hmm. And that is where our story ends. Yeah. This has been another episode. No, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For a few years, that's that's how it ended. But it turns out that Therese Humbert had a pretty remarkable talent. She was somehow able to get old people to will her vast sums of money. Mm, wish I had we that know talent. This, mm. Yeah, it's a good talent. We uh-huh. know this because it happened again. In 1881, word started getting around Paris that Therese Humbert, the daughter-in-law of Gustave Humbert, the minister of justice, had just inherited a huge sum of money from an American millionaire. Wow. Really? Yeah. And why would somebody leave some American guy 
leave a fortune to Therese. It's actually kind of a funny story. You see, mm. she had saved his life a few years before. In 1879, Therese was riding on the Petit Centure Railway. Mm. Petit Centure Railway in Paris. Yeah. This was a railroad that ringed Paris and was very popular in the late 19th century. It's gone now, but you can still kind of see some of the tracks in the places if you want to go and check out our story. Yeah, it is uh, still the there. It's kind of a tourist attraction, actually. Um, is it? Okay. A, yeah. a more minor, one of the more minor ones in Paris, obviously. But yeah. Right. So here's how it worked. Tell me. Uh, yeah. The, the passenger cars on the Petit Centaur were compartmented, which meant that they're, they're, it's like a, they're compartmented like a lot of cars, and even here in America, but they didn't have a central corridor. Uh, to get to get from front to back of the train, oh, each see. compartment yeah. spanned the width of the car and could only be accessed from the outside. In other words, from the rail platform. So there was a door on either side, and you could you know exit directly to the to the platform. This is a more efficient use of space. You weren't wasting interior space on corridors or aisles, things like that, right? Yeah. So yeah, precious real estate. Therese is riding the train in one of these compartments, and she hears a noise. From a neighboring compartment, it was a groaning sound, as if somebody was injured or perhaps uh, in trouble. She went to investigate, but of course, as I said, there was no internal access for the compartments in this train. Each compartment, as I said, was only accessible from the outside. So Therese did what anyone would do: she exited her compartment on the train while it was moving, shinned her way along the outside to the next compartment. In there, she found an elderly man who was semi-conscious. She revived him with smelling salts and. <clears throat> Apparently, he, he complained of chest pain. He was having a heart attack. Therese kept him comfortable and awake and got him off the train at the next stop so that he could get medical attention. So, yeah. So, apparently, this old guy that she saved was an American from Chicago named Robert Henry Crawford. He was, of course, very grateful for her help and made sure to get her name and address before they parted ways. Therese went on living her life, and she forgot about the whole thing. But then, just two years later, this this incredible thing happened. Really? What? What happened? Well, Therese got word from an American law firm that Robert Henry Crawford from Chicago had died. And he remembered her in his will. Whoa. And it just so turns out that Robert Henry Crawford was mega rich. Dude was loaded. Mm -hmm. He'd left Therese four million American pounds. Oh, British pounds, I guess. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> for four million pounds of what? <laughs> four million pounds of dollars. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, I don't need to talk to you all about inflation. Four million pounds in 1881 was a huge heaping amount of money. Oh, yeah. A staggering quantity of money. But oh, yeah. uh, there was a hitch, unfortunately, to this whole thing. Uh, she couldn't collect the money right yet. Robert Henry Crawford had had no children of his own. He did have two nephews, Robert and Henry Crawford. So Robert Henry Crawford wanted to keep his fortune in the family. So the way the will was set up, one-third of the money would go to Robert and Henry apiece. And then the other one-third would go to Teresa's younger sister, Marie, once she came of age and after she married one of the nephews, either Robert or Henry. Then the three of them were to pay Therese 14,000 pounds a year for the rest of her life. This, this of course, served to keep the uh, the whole fortune in the Crawford family, since Therese would, or excuse me, Marie would now be a Crawford officially, right? 
So, and Therese, of course, gets and, well, and just so that we don't go on without remarking that this is the most bat ass will that I've ever heard of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this I is mean, pretty ludicrous. It, it is, it is rather ludicrous. Yeah. I know. I mean, I, I guess um, what was happening is that I now we must not forget that Therese said she went on with her life and forgot about the whole incident, was just gobsmacked when she heard from these lawyers out of the blue that she'd been remembered in this guy's will. The guy yeah. must have been like cyber stalking her. Because he knew that she had a younger sister named Marie. Mm-hmm. And he knew this somehow. Okay. Well, um, you know, the whole thing is just kind of a head scratcher. But, you know, the, the main <laughs> thing is, is that Therese is, is at a certain point in time, after Marie turns 21 and can marry one of the nephews, Therese is going to get a huge honking amount of money every year. Because 14,000 pounds a year back in those days was a hell of a lot of money. I hope the, the nephews, you know, didn't have someone they wanted to marry. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, if they wanted to inherit that money, that, that, this whole thing, you know, the, the, the whole thing depended on her marrying one of the nephews before any of them could collect. And, oh, yeah, there was one more provision in the will. Nobody got the money, yeah, as I, I said. Some more. Yeah. And nobody got the money, of course, until Marie married a nephew. Until that happened, Therese was instructed to keep all of the Crawford millions in a safe. Oh, so she had she had all the all the pounds. Uh, apparently, she had either either cash or she had like I don't know what securities or something. I, but I believe my understanding is that she actually had cold hard cash that was she she was supposed to keep in this in the safe. Hmm. Okay, hmm. yeah. So she did. She had it in a rented mansion in Paris on Avenue de la Grande Amie. And by by the way, which is a posh neighborhood, uh, I believe it still is. Right, it still I mean, yeah, it was then, is now. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice yeah. neighborhood. Very nice neighborhood. So she installed a massive safe in the downstairs parlor in which she kept all four million of these pounds in. She hired a provincial magistrate to act as a notary and put together all the relevant documents, securities, etc., and get them into the safe and then sealed it with hot wax. It was not to be touched, much less open, until her sister's 21st birthday. This is sounding a, a, a little familiar. Yeah. Therese mm. made sure that the event was well publicized. You might be asking yourself, the mansion the safe was in? Yeah. Therese didn't have money for a mansion. No. No. See, she was able to get it on credit because of her pending fortune. Yeah, it is somehow, uh, somehow word had gotten around about this. Don't ask me how. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't It didn't hurt anything that her father-in-law was Gustave Humbert, Minister of Justice. Yeah, that did lend a little credibility to the whole escapade. And I guess this time around, completely inexplicably, Gustave bought her story. Or maybe he just went along with it. Maybe he didn't really buy it. We, we don't really know, but he was he was game. Yeah, but Gustav had obviously been been privy to the previous BS story, right? Yeah, so I don't know. Which has things in common, like the 21st birthday thing. If I were uh-huh. Gustav, I would be incredibly suspicious. But mm-hmm. oh, yeah. apparently he was in. So let's, let's, this, this probably brings up the question in a lot of people's minds, which is where did Therese get her remarkable ability to inver- inherit vast sums of money from people she barely knew? Well, it appears that she learned it or inherited it. This is a whole nature versus nurture thing, which we're not going to talk about here in this episode. But she got it from her father. 
Monsieur Arnac was a poor man who lived in a tiny cottage with his four kids, including Therese. He liked to drink, but he was actually from an aristocratic background, or at least that's what he told everyone. The home that he'd grown up in was a huge chateau in a state in the Auvergne, but unfortunately he had had a falling out with his parents and they had thrown him out, which was why he was now living in poverty. But they hadn't disinherited their grandchildren, and someday the grandkids would inherit the castle and vast quantities of money, along with a title of nobility. Not until after Monsieur Arignac had died. Ooh. Yeah, whoops, there was a hitch. Always a hitch. <laughs> <laughs> so Arignac, he had a wooden chest filled with documents that proved his children's claim to the castle and the title. Well, that's what he said anyway. He never opened the chest for anybody, but he would allow them to see the chest. Oh, proof. As proof. Oh, yeah, right? Oh. It's, there must be something in there. Yeah. Right? yeah. A lot of people believed him, including his daughter, Cherise, mm-hmm. who grew up thinking that she was descended from nobility and was going to be filthy stinking rich one day. Mm. Did well, that day ever come? It did. In fact, her father died in January of 1874. And there was a great air of anticipation as the wooden chest was finally opened up. To everyone's disappointment, the chest turned out to hold nothing but a brick. There was no deed to a castle, no titles, no nobility. Just Just a a brick. Freaking (laughs) brick, which, wow, if that's not a visual metaphor, here's your brick. That's almost insulting, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Oh, it's harsh, man. (laughs) Well, the air had certainly gone out of that balloon. Therese was no doubt bitterly disappointed and... uh, As we noted before, she had to take a very humble job as a servant girl after that. But, you know, apparently it gave her ideas. And she'd learned from watching her dad tell this story for all those years. I think that uh, the key is to be consistent, tell it with an air of absolute certitude, find clever ways to quash the doubters and reassure them. And so she learned well, apparently. So so here she is years later in Paris, 1881. That's great advice for both conmen and podcasters. Uh, I think so, yeah. You just sound sound authoritative, even if you don't have a clue what you're talking about. (laughs) And find clever ways to squash the doubters. Absolutely. Squash them on Twitter like a bug. (laughs) Yes. Mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo-history. Topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud. Stories like these, fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain, but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps. Contact D is the new movie from me, Vincent Caldoni. When therapist Jay Rossi is assigned a patient who claims to have been abducted by aliens, her story wins him over. Her tales begin to take on an aura of truth rather than insane delusion, and he concocts a plan to confront the alien intelligence. He absconds with her to a cabin in the mountains to document the phenomenon, prove that she is not crazy, but 
See, here's the thing. Messing with an otherworldly intelligence proves to be more dangerous than either Jay or his patient could have ever foreseen. Contact E is a heady thriller, more focused on ideas than CGI and loaded with twists. For more details, visit contactemovie.com. Well, back to our story. So yeah. there, there she is, Therese, in Paris, 1881. Embarked on her second big swindle. It went pretty well. The apparent backing of the Minister of Justice, of course, did help. The big mansion in Paris gave her an air of money and gravitas as well. Credit was forthcoming because Therese seemed like a good risk, and she promised to pay the money back at a really high rate of interest, sometimes as high as 60%. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's not wise financially, uh, unless, of course, you're planning to never pay the money back, in which case, (laughs) what the heck? (laughs) Yeah, got 100%. I mean, this actually, in a way, it does a lot to explain explain her her success at duping potential creditors, I think, as well, because she appealed to their greed. Yeah. Yeah, she promised fabulous returns on the, on their – so, yeah. That's, yeah, I don't, I don't know who, who to attribute the quote to, but there's a famous saying, you can't con an honest man. Oh, yeah. I don't know who the quote to get that one to either, but yeah, it's true. Yeah. It is very you know, true. They got to want something. They're trying to get ahead. They're like, oh, I'm going to take this rich lady for a for a real ride on this high interest loan. And then she turns out to be the con, the one that's mm-hmm. going to con you. <laughs> yep. Yep. Frederic and Therese rented a second mansion in the country and they bought a yacht. A steam powered yacht. Not just any old a yacht. A steam powered yacht. Steam yacht. Yeah. Nice. Nice. She bought tons of expensive jewelry. Ridiculous. Ridiculously pricey dresses, and she had become a major celebrity. She threw fabulous soirees. The elite of the elite French society hung out with Therese and Frederic. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Umberts also bought a newspaper and used it to advance the progressive causes of Gustave Humbert, which might explain, I guess, why he was going along with the swindle. I don't know. I could have. I mean, you never know exactly what was going on with that. I mean, Gustave, perhaps being a politician, I'm not sure exactly how uh, how relaxed the French were back in those days about things like bribery and stuff like that. It could have been a, a major money money laundering channel to him as well. Perhaps, you know, donors could funnel money to him to his son and daughter-in-law. I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe. maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's another reason he went along with it. I find it hard to believe that Gustave Humbert was actually believed the story the second time around about the, about this pending inheritance. Well, I'd, I'd ask, know? I'd ask the same thing about Frederic. Oh, I don't think, I don't think, I think Frederic by this point in time, I, I think he, he was in on it. He was, I, yeah, I, it I, seems I like believe that be, Frederic, right? Frederic, you know, the, I think, I think he was innocent the first time around, but this time around, I don't think he was. Yeah. I don't think it yeah. was. Yeah. Then, you know, this is all going really, really well. The money was, you know, rolling in, but a little trouble did crop up. About two years after the start of this, the, the newspaper La Matine published a skeptical article that was written by a man who was from Therese Humbert's hometown. He wrote about the, the, this most famous woman of Paris, and he wrote about her father and his tall tales of nobility and inheritances and castles. He noted the parallels between the dad's wooden chest full of documents and Therese's big fireproof safe full of securities and cash. And he wondered if perhaps Therese was just rerunning his, her dad's old scam. <laughs> hmm, you think? Sounds reasonable. So yeah. Therese knew that any doubts about her and her story would be that would be fatal. That would be that would oh, take yeah. the whole thing down. Credit would but dry was, up, and people would start wanting to get paid back. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. One, one, once a panic like that starts, yeah. but she was really clever in her responses. She invented a legal dispute 
between herself and the Crawford nephews, mm. Robert and Henry. I just love Robert and Henry. It's like, you know, Robert Henry Crawford, rich guy who has two nephews named Robert and Henry Crawford. <laughs> Did you, like, seriously, do you think that maybe she only really knew two English names? I, I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, yeah, that doesn't. What are the nephews' names? Yeah, but she's got a legal dispute with these two people, who, by the way, nobody has seen before, right? Nobody's yeah, ever no, actually they seen had, them. Haven't even been around. Yeah. So this is one of several holes in the story. No one had ever seen the Crawfords. But then, what do you know? The Crawfords showed up and demanded that Therese put the contents of the famous safe into a bank. Credit Leone. Hmm. Um, Therese, of course, refused, but the hmm. brothers brought legal action. Both sides got attorneys and wound up going to court. And the Crawford brothers had to appear in court. Yeah, After so we finally got to see them. Yeah, we got they, to see them. They showed up. They were real. They 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 do exist. How do you like Apparently, that? Wow, I mean, that's this is astonishing. Now, after much litigation, the court ruled that the safe and its contents should stay with Therese. Since those, after all, were the terms yeah. of the will. This whole thing about a fortune, a will, and whatever, it must be real. Since, after all, if the Crawford nephews didn't exist, how could they sue someone? How could they appear in a court of law? Yeah. But, of course, the Crawfords were actually real. They were played in court by Teresa's brother, Romain and Emile. But it was a masterful way of, of, of addressing the doubters. I mean, instead of just having a press conference and producing two guys saying that they were Bob and Hank Crawford, which really wouldn't have fooled anybody, I don't think. <laughs> Bob and Hank were forced to appear because of a lawsuit. And uh, it, it just uh, was a much less contrived situation when you think about it. You know, it was, mm -hmm. it was really, I think, a really clever way to deal with that situation. But mm, I think it's, yeah. Yeah. And a lot, of course, the, the lawsuits and legal bickering went on for years, and a lot of legal bills were racked up, but that was okay with Therese. And she was paying for the lawyers with other people's money. <laughs> no, at and, least the lawyers got paid. Yeah. And again, the legal fight kept up appearances, like I said, because non existent people can't sue. And there's really no point in expensive court fights over a non existent fortune. Is there? Is there? I mean, there isn't. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. In all, Frederic and Therese borrowed a total of about 50 million francs against a phony inheritance and a locked safe. Ah, nice. But of course, the con game, it couldn't go on forever. Mm. Marie had turned 21 long ago, and she was supposed to marry one of the Crawfords. So why wasn't this happening? Yeah, now people were beginning to talk about that. Uh, I think she earned the nickname of the eternal fiancé. Uh, people in Par <laughs> Parisian society were starting to ask, what's going on with Marie? What, why is she not going to marry this guy? In the meantime, you know, one of the, one of the other things that Therese had learned is that, you know, you got to show your creditors some money once in a while. Once in a while, you mm -hmm. got you to gotta make a payment. You got to pay somebody back, pay them off and stuff. And so if you got more money coming in, you can do that. But but she needed to start making some bigger payments because this had been going on for a while. And some she had owed some people some money for quite a while, and they were expecting to get paid back. So time for a new income stream. Yeah. Yeah. So Therese moves on to a third swindle, right? Ooh. This is swindle number three. Nice. She founded an insurance company called Runt Viagel. Mm. Or whatever, I don't know. Yeah. In 1893, this was essentially a pension fund which promised nice and high returns. Now, if this seems a little sketchy, well, the Pope and the president of South Africa had given the company their stamp of approval. Or mm, nice. Least, well, that's at least what the company's prospectus implied, since it had both photos of the Pope 
and the president of South Africa on it. Uh, In reality, of course, neither had been asked. I don't think the Pope really does things like that. Well, yeah, he uh, doesn't really. <laughs> maybe he used to. I don't think so. Yeah, either. I don't. Therese rented some expensive space in the business district, and the money really started flowing in. Yeah, it, it seemed pretty solid to a lot of people who didn't know anything, uh, the company that's, that is. They found a lot of investors. They were mostly peasants, working class people, small businessmen, kind of people who would really have trouble saving for retirement and providing for their own retirement. So mm. they invested in this company that would uh, pay them a, like a, an annuity when they reached retirement age. Sure. So great idea, right? Uh, and the company's sure. credibility went up when some claims came in, and those claims were promptly paid in full with no quibbling. Mm-hmm. So, okay, it's all on the up and up, apparently. These claims, of course, were were just paid with money that was coming in from new mm-hmm. investors. and not, It wasn't from secured investments or anything like that. But, you know, there were wow, some claims paid, so it looked good. that just sounds like somebody else I know. Like Bernie? <laughs> like not Bernie, Bernie Sanders, Madoff. the other Bernie. The other Bernie. Bernie Madoff, yeah. It sounds like, yeah, him, Ponzi. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of suspect that Bernie Madoff's had – Maybe it studied the case of Therese Humbert. That would be a, that would be a, that would if he was still alive. That'd be a fascinating question to, uh, to ask him. You ever, yeah, I bet he had. I bet he did. Yeah, I do. I do know that he had an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, Ponzi, mm-hmm. like the real man. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah, I know, oh, yeah, no, I know all Ponzi about scheme. that. Yeah, and yeah. Bernie Madoff knew all about him and what he did. And yeah, so I think I, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that he he knew about Therese Humbert. Uh, yeah, no, she was a master of the game way back in the day. But there, Rent Rent Viagher brought in, it's estimated, more than 40 million francs. Oh, that's probably a lot of money in today's money, huh? Yeah. So uh, Therese was able to pay down some of her earlier debts, keep the wolves. She kept the wolves at bay. And they also were able to to take a lot of money off the top and continue to live high on the hog. So so all good, right? There's a problem, though, which is, you know, scheme number three seems to be working pretty good. Scheme number number one has kind of blown up, but. Number two is still hanging in the air, mm. right? Sooner or later, Marie is going to have to marry one of the Crawfords, which would yeah. be her brother, and yeah. the big safe is going to have to be opened. Yeah, sooner or and, later. And in 1901, sure enough, Teresa's creditors, they sued her. Mm. For one thing, they wanted to open the famous safe and just see just what was in there. Mm. And in 1902, a French court agreed and ordered the safe to be opened. A date was set. May 9th, 1902. Hmm. And when the day arrived, the safe was opened. When they looked inside, what they found was a brick. A yep. brick. <laughs> a brick. Yeah. Plus a little something extra, an English halfpenny. But uh, yeah, apparently <laughs> the brick was must have been some sort of homage to dear old dad. What do you think? <laughs> I can't see it being anything other than that. <laughs> a brick. <laughs> well, finally, somebody gets around to saying, well, this is a fine how do you do. Maybe we should find Frederic and Therese and ask them exactly just what the heck was up with this brick in here. And uh, uh, well, surprisingly, the Umbers were nowhere to be found. Yeah, no. Uh, had they gone no. to the lambs, skipped town, flown the coop? Apparently so. And they didn't turn up until September when they were found hiding in Madrid and they were dragged back to Paris and put on trial. No, Therese no. mounted an ironclad defense for herself. Yeah. She admitted, she admitted that the source of the four million pounds was not Robert Henry Crawford, who never really existed after all. Instead, her benefactor was Francois Bazin. 
mm-hmm. a former marshal in the French army who conveniently had died back in 1888. Yeah. Now, here's a little historical uh, little historical fact for you guys. This is separate from what Therese was saying. Bazan, this is a, a Francois Bazan, had been accused of treason in the Franco-Prussian War for surrendering the city of Metz to the Prussian army. That would be the Germans, of course. The accusation was bogus, but Bazan was convicted anyway because the French army had failed in that war. They needed a scapegoat or two. And there was an accusation, almost certainly false, that Bazan had sold out to the Germans, perhaps even taken a bribe from the Germans. Yes, yes. So he was, yeah, he uh, he was actually sentenced to, he was, he was actually initially going to be put to death, but eventually the sentence was commuted to like 20 years at hard labor, which for an older man like himself was essentially a life sentence. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, he, was he was ill-treated, I thought, by, you know, by his government. Um, yeah, I and mean, that's a pretty scary thing. You know, you're surrounded by foreign troops, and you, you know, you and your men are looking to go out if you don't, uh, if you don't surrender, and and then they put you on trial for that. It's, yeah, it was the only reasonable course of action. But he was accused of treason like, for yeah. for doing it anyway. So back to yeah, so that's that's enough of our little history lesson there. But so let's go back to reality here with Therese and her trial. <laughs> yeah. So she's on trial, and she swore that she didn't know where Bazin had gotten the millions that he had left her, Mm -hmm. at least not at first. But she told the court, she eventually became aware that all the cash in her safe had been paid to Bazin from the Germans to betray France. Oh my God. And she was so incensed. She flew into a patriotic rage. She lost control and she burnt it all. She burnt the money that was in the safe. Oh, burnt yeah. it up. Makes sense. Makes total yeah, well, sense. No, no one really bought the story because really? it's a stupid story. <laughs> uh, I, I admire Teresa's shamelessness, I have to say. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> People were like, she just doesn't strike me as the kind of lady who lights, you know, four million francs on fire or whatever. Oh, God. Yeah. Are you kidding me? And besides <laughs> this, you know, he, the fact of the matter is that she still committed a crime if she did really burn the money because uh, she wasn't entitled to burn that money because she had used it to secure so many debts. That, you know, it was it was it didn't actually excuse anything, but of course, you know, the story itself was just sheer hogwash. I mean, I th- <laughs> I, I, I I wonder if if even when she concocted this story and told it to the court, if she thought that perhaps that uh, they would appreciate just the entertainment value of it so much they would go easy on her for just I her mean, creativity and her willingness to amuse them with utterly ludicrous stories like this. You know, we, we've covered several cases, especially for some reason, of women on trial mm. where creating a circus, a, a media circus, is a way to kind of overturn the chessboard, right? Like, yeah. So I, I guess maybe, maybe that was I, – I feel like I'm giving her too much credit, but it's possible maybe that was the idea. It was just blow the whole thing up. Yeah, well, she could have thought – I mean, there was there was a lot of nationalist feeling about that whole thing, um, uh, the whole Franco-Prussian War. And maybe she honestly was, was absurd, you know, dumb enough to think that the French people would rally around her when he heard this story of her amazing patriotism and everything, you know, she's a true patriot. Yeah. What a patriot. She burned a huge pile of money. I don't, you know, there's, I, I never have any sympathy for people who build, who burn piles of money, you know? 
It's yeah, like, well, then also, I mean, none of this explains why she left a brick in the safe. No, the brick, uh, the brick is, uh, yeah, that's kind of incriminating in and of itself, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, how that? So, what was it? What was the upshot of the trial, Vincent? Well, the upshot, the way the way it all shook out, is that Therese and Frederic Umbert were found guilty of fraud and of other fun things, and they were sentenced to five years in prison apiece. Therese's brothers, Romain and Emile were given three years and two years, respectively. I think you could make a case that they should have gotten a little bit of a stiffer sentence, yeah. considering they aided, at least, in ruining, financially anyway, thousands of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, all of them. I mean, I mean, but, you know, especially Therese and, and Frederick, five years was not nearly enough, in my opinion, for what they did. A lot of people wound up eating, you know, eating the French equivalent of dog food in their retirement, thanks to these two. You know? That's true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It never, it just never seems like anybody who commits financial crime ever really ends up having to pay for it like people who commit property crime or violent crime. Or yeah, drug no. offenses. I, I don't need to get, a, maybe that's getting too political, but well, I, it, just, it just seems like these, these, these guys, these white collar criminals like Therese and Frederic, you know, they do five years, but a guy steals a loaf of bread and he does two and a half. Yeah, now the, uh, well, you know, and a lot of it is because uh, often, often these banks, financial institutions, whatever, rich people don't really want to air all this in public so much. And so that's, and so that's one of the reasons point. that these people often do get off lightly. And in this case, of course, the extent of the financial damage is not actually known because yeah. it is believed that a lot of wealthier elite types didn't come forward with claims and didn't want to admit that they had fallen for such an obvious con job. And so they just kept their mouths shut. So, I mean, the, the, the amount of money these two built everybody out of could have been far higher than what than what we believe. And it was a vast sum of money, especially for that time. I think that's I think that's pretty likely. I mean if you've got it to spare, why why get dragged into it, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Especially, especially when you can when you consider that um probably they weren't ever going to get remunerated oh, no. for this. Oh, right? no, absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. So so why, you know, why suffer the embarrassment? You know, because well, people are people are probably going to make fun of you. Especially if you're, you know, one of the wealthier elite types, you're supposed to be smarter than everybody else, aren't you? <laughs> Right. So, yeah, exactly. So yeah, really, you no, know, it's true. Yeah. If you're in business, that's a real that really makes you look like a like a total idiot. Uh-huh. But so yeah. here's 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 the thing that I think is interesting. Therese, she serves her time and then she pretty much vanishes from history. Mm-hmm. It's generally believed that she emigrated to the United States and died in 1918. Though it has also broken been said that she by the way, you know, broken so. penniless, yeah. Uh, yeah. It has also been said though that she stayed in France and that she lived until 1930. Mm-hmm. No one really knows. There's right? some and dispute, we, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's a mystery. Yeah. yeah. So that's our mystery. So that's uh, that's the intro to our mystery. Now we're going to talk about what happened to Therese Umbert. That's the next two hours we're going to talk about. No, just kidding. Uh, yeah. All right. No. no, no. So anyway, that's our story. Uh, she had no more swindles in her, at least. Or you know, maybe she ran some swindles when she got to America. I don't know. It's that That is lost to history. Now I want to know about female con artists, especially if they maybe had a French accent or something like that. Mm-hmm. We're operating in America, you know, you know in the in the 19-teens, because uh, I, I would be very curious to see. She just doesn't seem like she could put it down. Yeah, no. I, I, if she sounds like, I mean, she's a fairly clever person. Person, it sounds to me like you know, if, if nothing, if she, even if she wasn't able to, to mount 
a massive con like this, you probably swindled at least a few people out of minor amounts of money. <laughs> probably, yeah. Period. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be checking to see if she yeah, was, was she it, had a French accent was or it, something. Yeah. So, but anyway, that's it. Uh, to sum it all up, there's been another tale of rampant criminality, aided and abetted by gobsmacking dumbness all around, uh, uh, willing ignorance, willing stupidity. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to believe. It's kind of shocking, really. Ooh, there you go. There's that word. <laughs> That so many people could be taken in by such obvious BS. Oh, her st- her stories were so gossamer thin. <laughs> they were ludicrous. But I guess that's that's the beauty of groupthink and greed. I mean, it's a good thing there's none of that going on today, right? Yeah, yeah right yeah, now, nobody's like that now. No, such such things could not be replicated today because we're so much smarter than these people back, were back then. Uh, yeah, so that's it, folks. Uh, that's, uh, unless you have any more thoughts, Vince, and I guess it's time to tell people how to find us via email and stuff. No, no, this is this is a good one. This is yeah, a fun one. I, a fun I, I one. genuinely laughed reading this one. Yeah, it's it's pretty absurd. Um, okay, folks. So anyway, stay tuned for some exciting information about how to email us and find us on Twitter and Facebook and all those other cool places. And yeah. Yeah, until next time, au revoir. The Shocking Details can be found at www.theshockingdetails.com. We're on Twitter at Shocking Details. For discussion of episodes and more, our Facebook group is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Shocking Details Podcast forward slash. Or you can email us at theshockingdetailspodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider giving us a like and a positive review and letting people know about us. You know those popping phone handle things that you see on everyone's phones nowadays? Well, how would you like to put your logo on them? Does your podcast or band need new merch? Do you want to bring attention to your new book or film? Maybe you need something unique for your Patreon or crowdfunding campaign. Then visit thelogopop.com, where you can customize them with the logo of your podcast, band, business, art, school mascot, or whatever else you can think of. These are way more affordable than you may think at thelogopop.com. Mention where you heard this ad and get free shipping on your entire order. Remember, that's thelogopop.com to order your custom popping phone handles. That's thelogopop.com. Teres Arignan. I didn't say that right. <laughs> Can I take it again? I, I'm yeah. not actually trying to say that. I forgot to look it up. Yeah, Arignac, like like cognac. Arignac. Well. <laughs> I think it's Al Alnac. I don't know. Al, Alnac. Okay. Okay. Here we go again. Snap. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. <laughs>